Amen, and you may be seated. <clears throat> Our Old Testament reading and text for this morning is Psalm 96. And our New Testament reading, as it was last time I was here, is Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Do you recall that last time the introduction to the sermon took up the entire time for the sermon? Um, and so this week we're going to actually get to the text in Psalm 96. But let's turn uh, also to Revelation chapter 11, uh, verses 15 and 19 for our New Testament reading. So hear the word of the Lord. First Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. De- declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then from Revelation chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless both the reading and the hearing of your word to our hearts and to our minds. Holy Spirit, do your work to illumine your word, plant it deeply in our souls to bear fruit in our living. 
Now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word. Your servant is weary in body and in need of the strength of your Holy Spirit to fulfill the task that you've placed before him to expound and to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would grant that unction and that strength to the glory of your name and to the edification of your people here gathered. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time, of course, was an introduction, really not just to this psalm, but I pulled the strings together as we walked through all the psalms that we've looked at in this series. As in the time that I'm here, before Matt will be here, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I'm doing what seems to be isolated psalms, but they're not. There's a purpose in the selecting of each one that I've expounded in order for us to see the progression in what we find in the Psalter itself. And so what we did was we did a quick walkthrough to remind ourselves of what we've seen in Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 24, Psalm 29, Psalm 80, Psalm 90, and then leading up here to Psalm 96. And then we begin to look at Psalm 96, first of all, where it is, the Psalter, but also the origin of this psalm. And when you bring those two things together, uh, it's really quite compelling. First of all, Psalm 96 is found in Book 4 of the Psalter. I would remind you, following Dr. Morales and his interpretation and analysis of the progression through the Psalms, Book 1 can be summarized under the heading, The Rise of the Davidic Kingdom. Book 2, The Glory of the Davidic Kingdom. Book 3, The Collapse of the Davidic Kingdom. And Book 4, The Absence of the Davidic Kingdom, which really corresponds with the Babylonian captivity. And then Book 5, The Return of the King. This psalm comes in Book 4, The Absence of the Davidic Kingdom. This psalm is also one of nine psalms that we find together that form a chiastic structure, a poetic pyramid. We've been looking at those as we walk through the Psalter. Um, nine psalms that are all devoted to the same theme, and that theme is Yahweh reigns, or Yahweh Malach psalms. Yahweh is king. And you can see how that fits when you're thinking about the time of the Babylonian captivity. Even though David's son is not on the throne, there is no throne. David's throne, David's crown, at the end of book 3, Psalm 89 is in the dust. It's in the dust as the collapse occurs and the people are taken away, including David's son or his descendant, are taken away into captivity. There's no throne in Jerusalem, but God is not dethroned. Nothing can knock Yahweh off of his throne that's in heaven, and he is still sovereign, he still reigns, and he has his purposes, even in his chastising judgment upon his people. And so you have these nine psalms that are all Yahweh, Malak psalms, or the Lord reigns. And in this book, there are no messianic psalms. It's quite interesting, but it makes sense. If there's not a son of David on the throne in Jerusalem, you say, 
course, we're going to get into Messianic Psalms as you turn the page and move into book 5 as it anticipates the return of the King, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <clears throat> okay, that's where 96 is here. It's the pinnacle psalm, the center psalm in these nine psalms that are about uh, the, the reign of Jehovah. But where does it come from? And this is so interesting and intriguing to me. This is not the only place you find these words. Psalm 96 is lifted almost verbatim. When I say almost verbatim, I mean there are only a couple of places where there's a slight change in the wording. The message is the same. This psalm is lifted verbatim as you would have it from a psalm that's found not in the Psalms, not in the Psalter, but a psalm that's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, a psalm of David. And you will recall, we looked at it last time that I was here, that this was the psalm that David wrote. David gave the psalm to Asaph, the other musicians and singers. He told Asaph, you play the cymbals. And when the Ark of the Covenant that David had gone to get and bring into the city, when we bring the Ark of the Covenant and put it in its resting place in the tent that David pitched, this is the song that you sing. The other thing that we see in association with that is that David offered whole burnt offerings to the Lord and peace offerings to the Lord on that particular occasion. So Psalm 96 is the latter part of that psalm that's found in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16. It's lifted from there. We know David wrote it. Now, let's compare where we find this psalm. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, it's a time of God's extraordinary blessing upon his people. In fact, I think this could very well be the occasion that marks Israel and the, 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 kingdom of, the, the kingdom of David, David's kingdom, the covenant with David, as it moves into its glory, could be marked with this event. Why? Because David brings in the Ark of the Covenant. Then what happens immediately after that? David says, I'm going to build the Lord a house. He shouldn't live in a tent. And God said to him, no, your son will build me a house, but I will enter into a covenant with you. Your sons will sit on this throne if they keep my covenant. This is what occasioned the covenant that God made with David. And so the kingdom of David, the covenant God made with David, is coming into its glory in this event. Now, of course, it finds its zenith under the reign of Solomon in terms of peace and prosperity and the blessing upon the land, the blessing upon the king. <clears throat> but, but this, in 1 Chronicles 16, marks the entrance into that age of glory in the Old Covenant in the Davidic uh, kingdom. And so David composed the psalm in a time of great celebration and joy and basking under God's smiling countenance, his face lifted upon his people in blessing. And yet it's placed here in Psalm 96, if we're talking about the exile here, in a time when they're under God's frowning providence, his judgment because they didn't keep covenant 
with God. They broke covenant with God, so much so that God comes in chastisement, destroys the city, destroys the temple. David's palace is torn to the ground. The throne is in the dust, and the people are carried away into captivity under that judging hand. And yet, the same psalm applied in these two vastly different circumstances as we see it here in this place. And why is that? Because Yahweh reigns through it all. Times of blessing, times when it seems as though his face is hidden from us, Yahweh still sits on the throne. He is a sovereign God. And as we learned in Sunday school this morning, his activity towards his people is only good all the time even when it is his chastising hand that's upon us. Now, here's what I want you to note. Psalm 96 is about as universal as any psalm as you'll find. When I, when I speak of universal, I don't mean that every single person's going to be saved. That's universalism. But the scope of God's intent and plan was always beyond Abraham and his seed according to the flesh. This is clear in the Old Testament. It's made more clear with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the intent of God through the son of David who would come to save not just Israel, but to save the world. And so the call here is universal. David saw it clearly. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant into his city, Remember how we talked about it last time, how David took off his robes, he took off his crown, he danced before the ark in a linen ephod and a priestly undergarment. What was he saying in that act? He was saying, I'm not the king of Israel. Yahweh's the king of Israel. I'm the servant of Yahweh. God is to be honored and glorified and given his rightful place here in the holy city. But David saw the purpose of Jerusalem, the purpose of the people of God, was to be a light on a hill. When God led them out of Egypt, when God led them through the waters of the Red Sea, when God led them to Mount Sinai, when he gave them his law and his covenant, his intent was to give to a redeemed people. And that's what they were, a people redeemed from bondage in Egypt to give them his commandments that they would be a holy people. And living as a holy people, it would be like a light that's set on the hill. They would give glory to Yahweh and that the nations would come, that they would come. Of course, the sad thing that we see is that Israel failed in her missionary calling. And later we'll see that the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel, did not fail. And he is the light to the world. But David saw this. He knew the purpose of Israel. He knew the purpose of the kingdom. He knew the purpose of the covenant that God would make with him right after he composed this particular psalm. And that was to call the nations, to call the world, to come and bow before God as God would be gracious to them if they came. Listen to how, 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 how universal it is. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, look, all the earth. And we'll see in this psalm, 
it, it's not just the people. At the end of this psalm, like we see in Psalm 148, even the earth itself and the inanimate objects in the earth will sing praise to God. But in particular, it's people that are made in his image who are to sing his praise. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Now listen to the call. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He alone is God. And he goes on to say, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The call is to go out to all the world to come and bow before Yahweh, your maker, to enter into this blessing of redemption through him. And we're going to see that as we move further in this particular psalm. I want to move quickly to to the second strophe because you will remember or you should remember that we encountered these words or some of these words in Psalm 29. And I want to compare and contrast them. Listen to what he says in 7 to 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now, let's turn back to Psalm 29. And I'm going to read and see if you hear an echo of those words at the beginning of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Do you see the echo? The same words. The only difference, and it's a significant one, is who is being called to worship God in Psalm 29 over against who is being called to worship God in Psalm 96. In Psalm 29, David is not calling upon the peoples of the earth to worship the Lord. He's calling upon the angels in heaven to worship the Lord. But he uses the same words. And Psalm 96, lifted from First Corinthians, First Chronicles, chapter 16, is a Davidic psalm. David wrote both 29 and David wrote what is now in Psalm 96. He's saying the same thing to the angels that he later says to the peoples of the earth. In other words, in Psalm 29, the picture here is of the invisible heavens that God created in the beginning when he created the invisible heavens and created the angels to indwell the invisible heavens and there set his throne from where he would reign in the invisible heavens. And David is calling upon those inhabitants of heaven to ascribe to the Lord glory. And of course, 
He doesn't have to call upon them to do it. They do it all the time anyway. <laughs> it's what they were created to do. And yet he still delights to call them to do what God created them to do, to ascribe to him glory and honor. But in Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. You see the difference? Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Same thing. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Same, same thing. But now there's a line here in Psalm 96. It's not found in Psalm 29. Bring an offering and come into his courts. That's in 96. It's not in 29. I'm going to explain shortly why that is. But then worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That's in 29. That's in 96. Why does he tell the peoples of the earth to bring an offering and come into his courts? And why does he not tell the angels in heaven to bring an offering and come into his courts? The angels don't have to bring an offering. The angels in heaven, the elect angels, those who are in heaven, kept by the power of God, have never fallen. They're not in need of redemption, you see. They're called the elect angels. The reprobate angels fell, Lucifer being chief among them, and the others that fell, these are demonic spirits that are active and at work. They are fallen. They are under God's just judgment. There's no hope of redemption for them. But the elect angels never fail. There's no need for them to bring a sacrifice. They don't need to come through the mediation of blood into the presence of God because they've never sinned. But we have. We fell in Adam. And we are sinners before God. We justly deserve the same wrath and judgment that the fallen angels have received and will receive in eternity. But God is merciful. Not to fallen angels. There's no hope of redemption for them. But God is merciful to men made in his image, to his elect who are made in his image, but who are fallen in Adam. He offers to them mercy and hope and redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And that's prefigured in the Old Covenant through the sacrificial system. I briefly touched upon this last time, but I want to repeat it as well. You remember the Old Testament system of blood sacrifice, of animal sacrifices? There is an order in that system. First of all, there's the trespass offering or the sin offering that is made. Now that offering is made before God. It's, it, it, the, 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 the animal is slain and sacrificed. A portion of the meat goes to the priest. The other is consumed upon the altar before God. But after the trespass offering, of course, the sins of the worshiper are imputed to that animal, and the animal is sacrificed in that place. And so sins are forgiven under the Old Covenant through the sin offering or the trespass offering. But the second offering, and the most important, is the whole burnt offering. And that follows upon the sin offering or trespass offering. What happens in the whole burnt offering? 
The whole of the animal is consumed upon the altar. None of it's given to the priest. None of it's given to the worshiper. None at all. It is entirely consumed. In other words, it is, it's changed. It's transformed from the animal into smoke. And it goes up into the presence of God as a, as a, a fragrance before the Lord. That's what happens in the whole burnt offering. What does it represent? It represents total consecration to God of the worshiper. The worshiper's sins are forgiven, but now in the worship of God, they're entirely consecrating themselves before God. And God expects nothing less than that of you ever. The whole burnt offering. And then there's the peace offerings. And what happens with the peace offering? The animal is slain. A portion of it's put upon the altar that's offered up to God. A portion goes to the priest and a portion goes to the worshiper. And there's a feast. They feast. They eat together. Forgiven and consecrated to God. Now they fellowship with God in each other in eating the peace offering. And when David... When David brought in the Ark of the Covenant, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tent, when David's psalm that we have here was sung, they offered whole burnt offerings and peace offerings on that occasion. Previously, he had offered offerings that were in all probability, though it's not designated, sin offerings. That's the picture under the Old Covenant. It's fulfilled in Christ Jesus, you see. He is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is the sacrifice of which they are types and shadows. They have their power and efficacy because they foreshadow his cross, his death. He was offered up once. His shed blood is what covers your sin. Not just that, as we read and our assurance of pardon. It is a propitiation that is God's wrath that is justly against you because of your sin. Jesus steps in front and takes that wrath in your place, and you receive blessing because you're found in him. So all of the offerings find their fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. And we see that we don't do sacrifices anymore. There aren't peace offerings anymore, but there's certainly fellowship meal. It's right here. What do we do? We come to the table, and the Lord offers himself to us under the figures of bread and wine. We remember Jesus once and for all sacrifice in our place and our need for him so we eat, our need for him so we drink. And this meal, this simple meal of this much wine (laughs) and a bite of bread fulfills all the feasts and festivals of the Old Testament, including that of the peace offering itself. These are types and shadows in the Old, but they declare Christ Jesus. In the Old Covenant, there's a lot more outward 
glory and adornment that we see with tabernacle and temple. This is far simpler, but incredibly more glorious because this reveals the Lord Jesus Christ who is here with us as we come to the meal. It's extraordinary to see. Angels don't need the mediation of blood. People do. And since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only his blood shed for us that we need. Worship the Lord in splendor and holiness, and then this is added in addition to what you find in Psalm 29. Tremble before him, all the earth. That should characterize our worship. That we're left trembling before his majesty, before his sovereignty, before his power, but maybe even more before his mercy and his grace to sinners. It should cause you to tremble. And then verse 10, which is centered here in the text, and it is the theme of these nine psalms that we have, beginning with 92 and ending with 100. This is the center one. Say among the nations, this is what we're to preach. Yahweh reigns. You see it? The Lord reigns. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, God's covenant name. The one true God reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This is the Yahweh who created the world and established it. We have to say, but what about in the judgment? What about in the end? Will it not be moved? No, it'll be transformed in the new heavens and the new earth when heaven comes down with the Lord Jesus Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. God has established creation. And it will, creation will continue forever in eternity to come. And then we have these ominous words, he will judge the peoples with equity. This is why you need mercy. (laughs) It's why you need to flee to Jesus. Under the old covenant, it's why you needed to go through this sacrificial system, now fulfilled in Christ Jesus, why you need to flee to Jesus. There's no favoritism here. He will judge the world with equity. But you'll not be judged. Why? Because you're hidden Christ. And the Father judged him in your stead. That's the cross. That's the gospel. And then we have the call again, expanding out, even... I don't know, sometimes I think Dan's reading my mind. <laughs> we go from Sunday from Sunday school to the sermon <clears throat> because he, 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 he did exactly the same thing in Sunday school this morning. It expands from the peoples of the earth to really all of the earth to sing praise. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. 
That is the sea and all that fills it, the fish, the sea creatures. We read that in Psalm 148, which does the same thing. You, you mean these creatures that are that are not image bearers of God as men are image bearers of God or to worship God? Well, of course. A being what God ordained them to be. Let the field exalt. You mean the grass? Yes. And everything that fills it, the beast and the cattle. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. We say trees can't sing. They're inanimate objects. They don't think. They don't have minds the way even animals do. But God made them, and by making them, God created them to declare his glory by being what he created them to be, you see. Also, what we see in here is we see the earth groaning, as we read in Romans chapter 8, for its redemption that will be revealed in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Adam is federal head over the earth. When Adam fell, the curse came not only upon Adam, but upon the earth and upon the ground. Remember thorns and thistles. Remember the adversarial relationship between Adam and the animals. Post-fall. And so it is under the impact of the fall and ruin. But the earth will be renewed under the second Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And it groans now, awaiting that renewal. But even now, even under the impact of the fall, the heavens and the earth still declare the glory of God. You cannot stamp out the clarity of his general revelation through what he's made. And then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord for he comes. You see the anticipation of his coming. For he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. He is coming to judge. There will be the redemption of the earth, but also our redemption will be made manifest in Christ Jesus. And we should cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, what are we to do with a text like this? We're to see the grandeur of the gospel, of God's intents and purposes, how it's typological in the Old Covenant, how it comes to fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, how it looks forward to the age to come and to that great day of judgment where Christ will come in the clouds of glory. We're to see our lives here as but a vapor, short-lived, important, yes, and we're to honor and glorify him now, but how? by living in light of the age to come and in the power of the age to come in order to be a light on a hill now. Israel failed to be that light on a hill. She failed her mission as seen in David's psalm. But the second item is the light of the world. He did not fail. 
and he draws all men to him. And he tells us to be the light of the world. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of darkness. Why are we seeking the Lord's face to plant a church here on the peninsula? The church is here, and we're thankful for that. But for another place that will be a lampstand, it will shine the light of the gospel to this dark place around us. Don't hoard the blessings of the covenant <laughs> that are given to you in Christ Jesus. Don't hide the light under a bushel. We Presbyterians are pretty good at that sometimes. We find somebody that agrees with us, we might let them peek in and come in. We slam it down. What if somebody doesn't agree with everything we think? We should lift it up and say to everybody, come, come. Because this is the hope for the world is this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ Jesus? Do you know him? He died for sinners. All we must do is repent and believe on him and trust in him. We cannot save ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us. We thank you that you open blind eyes and deaf ears to see and to hear and hearts to believe. We thank you that this call is extended to everyone would have ears to hear, that you will not turn away a single person who comes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.